Now, friends, we're going to discuss today the greatest revolution that ever took place. That was the conversion of the apostle Paul. Now, in the first nine verses of the third chapter of Philippians, we find that this was a tremendous thing that happened to him, that he had changed his bookkeeping system of the past. And he tells us what he had on one side of the ledger and then what he had on the other side of the ledger. Now, what happened to Paul was this. On one side of the ledger, when he was a Pharisee under Judaism, he had so many things that he added up. And it made a pretty big total, so much so that he felt that all of these things commended him to God. These things were credits to him. Now, over on the debit side, there was somebody he hated, and that was Jesus Christ, and he was trying to eliminate the followers of Jesus Christ. That was the debit side, the credit side, the debit side. When he met the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, he changed his bookkeeping system. What was a debit became a credit. What was a credit became a debit. Now, friends, that's a revolution. Suppose that when I got back the other day off of a conference trip, I'd gone down to the local department store where my wife exercises her marital freedom in using a credit card down there, and she generally has a pretty nice bill. Suppose that I had gone down there when we got back, and I'd said, I want to pay the bill, and I handed in a check. And the bookkeeper would have said to me, Why, Mr. McGee, since you've been gone, we changed our bookkeeping system. What was a debit? It's a credit. What's a credit? It's a debit. And you don't owe us. We owe you. Now, friends, if the economy of this country permitted that to happen, I'd be a millionaire. And I'd be getting instead of giving all the time. And that would be so upsetting that you can talk about what inflation would do and what the monetary system of the world is being shaken today. My friend, that would shake it. That would upset it. Well, that's what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. He's going to tell us about it now, and he's going to tell us what he had to begin with. Now, we come to chapter 3, and now we've come to the prize for Christian living. We've had the philosophy of Christian living. For me to live is Christ to die, gain. We have seen the pattern for Christian living. And in that pattern for Christian living, we have seen, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now there's a prize for Christian living. And we're going to see that. Paul said he's going to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now what we have here in chapter First of all, we have Paul changed his bookkeeping system here of the past. And we are going to see how he did that. And then we're going to see in verses 10 through 19, Paul changed his purpose for the present. And then Paul changed his hope for the future. And that's important to see. Now, Paul believed that God was going to establish a kingdom on this earth. He never changed from that, but he did see that there was a marvelous, wonderful hope for believers today in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, in the body of believers, 
that there was coming a day when he would take his own out of the world. This is a very wonderful chapter we're going to look at. Now, when we come here to verse 1 in this section where Paul changed his bookkeeping system of the past, he says, "...finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord." Now, apparently, he was coming to the end of his epistle to the Philippians. You can see it was really going to be a very brief one. And it was a thank you note. And he was now drawing it to an end. And he says, "...finally, my brethren." But the Spirit of God now is going to move him on because he's only halfway through the epistle. He's only halfway through. And by the way, when your preacher says, now in the last place are finally my brethren, and actually he's only halfway through his sermon, don't find fault. He's just really being scriptural because that's the way Paul did it. Finally, my brethren, he says, rejoice in the Lord. My wife reminded me in a conference some time ago where I was speaking, and she said, you said, now let me say this to you here in the final case, the final analysis, and then I'll be through. And she said, you weren't through for 15 minutes. You weren't through at all. Well, now my wife can talk to me like that, I guess. At least she does. And I told her I was just being scriptural. Paul said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, you notice that's going to be his final word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's his last word to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. I believe that if Paul was here at this microphone, I think that he would like to just say this word to you, Christian friend, wherever you are. Finally, my brethren, Rejoice in the Lord. That's his message. That's a command, by the way. And we're going to see that in the next chapter when we look at the power for Christian living. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, to write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it's safe. In other words... Paul says that it's been no burden to him to write this letter. There was no burden on his heart like there was when he wrote to the Galatians and wrote to the Corinthians because there were problems in those churches. And Paul says, well, this has been a great joy to me. And it's perfectly safe for me to write these things to you. Now he's thought of something else. But before that, he says... Now, I want to talk to you Philippians, and I want to tell you certain things. He says, for instance, here, first of all, he says, I want you to beware of dogs. Now, this is not a word that he's giving to the mailman. I don't know why. We had a dog, a husky, and that dog hated the mailman. I don't know why, because we changed mailman quite frequently during the time that we had the dog. And each one of them, he had the same attitude toward them. And so probably this would be a word for the mailman, beware of dogs. But that's not really what Paul's talking about. When he says dogs, what does he mean? Well, I think we can get some insight on this if we go back to Isaiah, the 56th chapter, verse 10. And Isaiah there is warning the people against false prophets in his day. 
those that attempted to comfort the people all the time instead of giving them warning all the time. And that's a grave danger today because in our very affluent society where comfort is the last word, I'll be very frank with you, when we travel, we're at the age that we like to rest. I look for a motel that's comfortable. I'm not roughing it. I just don't believe I'd be able to make my engagements if I carried a sleeping bag with me and slept by the side of the road. Just couldn't do it physically. I look for comfort, and I think all of us do. And as a result, there's a danger today in the ministry of just comforting the saints all the time. I had a man, he was a prominent member, that left the church that I ministered in, and he gave us the reason that I never gave him any comfortable messages. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I found out later that in his business, he wasn't exactly ethical always. The fact of the matter is that there were some thought he was very unethical. And very frankly, he didn't need messages of comfort. He needed messages of warning. And I think that was the thing he didn't like. I'm not sure, but what he thought I knew something, which I absolutely did not know. And I never preached a sermon at an individual in my life, so it could not be that. But I'm of the opinion that there are too many folk today want comfort when they actually probably need to have something else. When I went to see the doctor, I tried my best to be evasive with him, and I told him that I knew somebody that had the same trouble I did, and they were given medicine and got over it. And my doctors examined me. He said, now... Donna McGee, if you need medicine, medication, I'm going to give it to you. But he says, I don't think you need medication. You're in trouble. Well, now, that's not very nice to say, is it? But I've thanked him for it. Many times he said to me very candidly, he says, I'm going to tell you the truth, because if I don't, you won't have confidence in me. Now, he said, you have cancer. <laughs> I've thanked him for that ever since, may I say to you. I want to hear the truth. Don't you want to hear the truth? Well, there were a great many prophets in Isaiah's day, false prophets that were comforting the people. In fact, they were not warning them at all. Now, in Isaiah 56.10, this is the way he describes them. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. The dumb dogs. He likens the false prophet to dumb dogs. You see, the sheepdog, I tell you, he watched the sheep. And if a lion or a bear made a foray into the flock, that dog was there to run him away and bark like mad and gave a warning of approach of any kind of danger. But you see, the false prophets, they were slumbering. They gave no warning at all. And Isaiah was unpopular because people said, let us sleep. And that's what the danger in America today. We're going to sleep, friends. Not just under drugs and alcohol, but under the affluent blanket that we're in. Under the idea of comfort, of something for nothing. Take it easy. Have a good day. Those are the things today that we're seeking. And as a result... Why, somebody ought to be doing a little barking today. And so he called the false prophets dumb dogs. I'm not sure, but that's where the D.D. degree originated. Dumb dog degree. (laughs) 
not saying what you ought to say as a prophet of God, as a man of God. And so Paul says, beware of dogs. Beware of these men that are constantly comforting you and are not giving you the Word of God. And he says, beware of evil workers. Now, some are evil workers. They're absolutely not honest. I don't want to go into that today. Now, beware of the concision. Now, he slurs the word circumcision. Why? Because he says they're really no longer the circumcision. And he calls them the concision. But he is warning against Judaism, the legalizers, those that were wanting to put Christians under the law. He says, beware of the concision. Now he says, we are the circumcision. What does Paul mean by that? Well, I think he made it very clear over in the epistle to the Galatians when he came to the end of that epistle. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So he says, the old circumcision is out. It's whether you're in Christ And that is the true circumcision. That's what he's saying here. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. And have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Now don't you see what the enemy now is going to say? And they did say it. They would come along and say, Well, now, you know, Brother Paul, He says that we're not to have any confidence in the flesh. We're not to trust the rituals. We're not to trust the sacrifices. We're not to trust even the law. The law won't save us. And that we're not to rest upon these things, but that we are to have no confidence in the flesh. Now, Brother Paul does well to say that, because actually he doesn't have very much to rest upon. He has no background. He never was very far along in our religion. He never really knew much about it, and his life never did measure up. So he does well to say that, of course. All right, Paul's going to answer that. He says, we have no confidence in the flesh. But he says, listen to him now, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Paul said, If there's anybody that could have confidence in the flesh, I could have confidence in the flesh even more. Listen to him. Verse 4, If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Paul says, I will put my religious life down by any man, and I'll measure up to him, and not only that, I will have something left over. I more. Now, he's going to mention here seven things that before he met Christ on the Damascus road, he trusted in. And I want you to notice these seven things here that he mentions because they are, very frankly, very important. Now, will you notice he says first, circumcise the eighth day. Now, what does that mean? Well, he didn't get up out of the crib on the eighth day and go down to the synagogue and have this done or to the temple. It means that his parents took him. You remember the Lord Jesus was taken up to the temple on the eighth day and circumcised. Circumcised the eighth day. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, that means he had godly parents who reared him according to the Mosaic law. It means that he had wonderful parents. And my friend, that's an asset. That's an asset to any man. One of the things that I think hurt me more and helped me back more in my early ministry than anything else was the fact that I was not brought up in a Christian home. My dad was a heavy drinker. He would not darken the door of a church. He was very bitter and very much prejudiced. He made me go to Sunday school, however, and I do thank God for that. But I never saw a Bible or heard a prayer. And when I went away even to seminary, I did not know the books of the Bible. I was totally, woefully ignorant of the Bible. And there are people who think that I still am. But I have improved a little on it. Not much, but a little. And so I would meet other fellows, and they seemed to know so much. Brought up in a Christian home, with a Christian background. And what an asset that seemed to be to them. And I always felt deprived. I always felt that I'd missed something. Now, Paul could say, I was circumcised the eighth day. And that means he had godly parents. And now, notice the second thing that is mentioned here. He says, I'm of the stock of Israel. And I want to tell you that there was many an enemy that he had, a Judaizer, that was a half-breed. Paul was not. Paul says, I'm of the stock of Israel. I have a genealogy, and I think you could have checked Paul's genealogy in the temple in that day, that I have a background. I belong. I'm in. I'm not a half-breed at all. I belong. And that has a tremendous value, by the way. My feeling is that a great many of us that were not brought up in the church and When we entered, we had to sort of prove ourselves. I've always felt it probably was a handicap. It's hurt the church because I have seen many times a young man brought into the ministry who was as liberal as he could be. And obviously, he failed in the examination. And some old brother would get up and say, Now, I knew this boy's father. He was a great preacher. He stood for the things of God. But you see, we weren't ordaining the boy's father. It was the boy. And on the basis of that, it counts. I'll say that. It'll count in any circle today if you can say, I'm one of those that belong to the in group. I belong to the now generation. That's worth something. And Paul could say that. There's no question about his genealogy. Now, will you notice the third asset that he had? He said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. (laughs) And say that was something. Because, you see, Benjamin was a son of Jacob by Rachel. And she died when she gave birth to Benjamin. And you remember old Jacob called him the son of his right hand. That's what his name really meant. Because Rachel says, call him Benoni. He's the son of my sorrow. He's brought my death. But old Jacob, when he looked down in the crib and saw that little fellow, and he had the eyes of his mother. And Jacob, I tell you, Rachel's the one bright spot in his life before Peniel. And as a result, why, old Jacob just leaned on his son. He's going to be the son of my right hand. 
He's going to be my walking stick from now on. He's something special. And the tribe of Benjamin was like that. And the first king of the nation, Saul, came from Benjamin. And I have a notion that Paul had been named for King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. That was his name that he was given at birth. This is something that meant that he really was up. He belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, you see. And it's nice to be able to say my father was a preacher, a minister of the Word that stood for the things of God, or he was an outstanding layman. Those things are worth something. Of course they are. And they are things that men brag about today. I meet so many people that when I ask them about their relationship to Christ, always come back like this. Well, Dr. McGee, I was brought up in the Baptist church, or I was brought up in the Presbyterian church, I was brought up in the Methodist church, and my grandfather, he founded a certain church, and there's a window down there in that church that's just dedicated to him. And that's the reason a lot of the folk today won't leave a liberal denomination, because grandpa's got a window somewhere that's dedicated to him. May I say to you, that's an asset. I have to admit that it is, although I feel like it's a great hindrance today. But he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. That was an asset. And if you don't think that was enough, the fourth thing, he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrew. Paul says, I belong to the highest strata of the religious circle. I was up in the top echelon. Now, the fifth thing, he says, is touching the law of Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee represented the very best in Israel. The Pharisees were a religio-political party that had arisen sometime after the captivity or during it. And as a religious party, they were fundamental. They believed in the integrity of the Scriptures. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles. And they were also a political party. They were extremely nationalistic. And they thought at first, when they sent Nicodemus to Jesus, that somehow or another they could hitch their little wagon to his star and that they could establish the kingdom here upon this earth. They were the best in Israel. And Paul says, I was a Pharisee. And not only that, touching the law of Pharisee, but sex concerning zeal persecuting the church. Now, you say to me, well, that's nothing to brag of. It was in that day that he had led in persecuting the Christians. The other Pharisees were willing to sit down when they ran them out of Jerusalem. Paul said, I'm not. I'm going to ferry them out all over the world. And he was on the way to Damascus at the time of his conversion. And then the seventh thing, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. Now, Paul doesn't mean that he was sinless. He said blameless. Because back in Romans, he makes it clear that he broke the law. And he broke one of the laws, by the way, that you and I today may not attach very much importance to. Over in the seventh chapter of Romans, he speaks of the fact that the law, something that, well, here's the way he puts it in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, you cannot break the commandment, Thou shalt not steal, but what you'll have the stuff on you, or you may leave your fingerprints back at the scene of the crime. 
And the same thing would apply to murder. When you commit murder, you've got a corpus delecti on your hands. And they're hard to get rid of, I'm told. And you cannot commit adultery without somebody knowing about it. You just couldn't do that sin without it. But you can cut it, and nobody would be the wiser. So if Paul had kept quiet, we might think that he'd reached the place of sinless perfection. But he very frankly says he hadn't. He said the law slew him. And what he's saying here is this. He brought the proper sacrifice. He brought a sin offering. Now, these are the things that Paul had on the credit side of the ledger. And these are things that there are multitudes of people today trusting in in our churches, church membership. Paul had all of that. He had the whole bit. And he says, that did not save him, nor did it satisfy him. And today, multitudes are resting on this sort of thing. Now we're going to see next time what really happened to the Apostle Paul. Now, friends, we come back to this very marvelous third chapter of the epistle to the Philippians. And today we put in it verse 7. Now, last time we saw that Paul gave to us the things that he could trust in and did trust in when he had confidence in the flesh. That is, he believed that his good works, his religion, his ritual, his sacrifices, everything that he did contributed to his salvation. And then he met the Lord Jesus, on the Damascus Road. And what happened? A revolution took place. Listen to him describe it here. Verse 7, "...but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ." Now, that is what happened on the Damascus Road. What things were gained to me, I counted them loss for Christ. Now, on that credit side of the ledger where he had been making these additions of good works and his character, his background, his religion. My, all of that seemed to add up and amount to something, and it did on the human plane. But he says, when I met Christ, it got off of the credit side and actually became a debit. I no longer trusted that. And when I met Jesus Christ, I'd hated him before. I was on the way to Damascus to persecute his followers And now the one who was on the debit side becomes the credit side, and the only one I trust in is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, if the bookkeeping system of this country was transformed like that, it would upset the economy of the world, and it would be a revolution. A revolution took place. And actually, any conversion is a revolution, because what things are gained become a law. What is a loss becomes a gain. It turns you upside down, right side up, and inside out. It gets you in an altogether different position. And friends, if this hasn't happened to you, well, all I can say is it just hasn't happened. That's all. And this is what conversion is. Now, between verses 7 and 8, there is a time lapse. How long? I'm not prepared to say But later on, Paul could say this, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, I do count them but dung that I may win Christ. 
Now, that was not just an experience of a moment. Actually, this matter of conversion is not a balloon ascension. And a great many people think sanctification is that, that you can go down to some altar, you can have some experience and see a vision, and that you're carried to the heights, and that's it. Why, my friend, may I say to you, conversion is something that stays with you. It's not for the moment. It happens in a moment, but it continues on. And sanctification is a walk, and a walk is not something you do way up in the air in a balloon ascension. A walk is right down here day by day and moment by moment. Now he says, I have found out since I've come to Christ that the knowledge of Jesus Christ is uppermost in my thinking. And he said, I've suffered the loss of all things. All of these things I counted on while I no longer count on them. And Paul says, I count now what he counted before as being so wonderful, his prized possession. He says, it's now done. That's a strong statement. Paul says, I flush my religion down the drain. And that's what a great many folk need to do today. I remember hearing Dr. Carroll say years ago, he says, when I was converted, I lost my religion. And a great many people need to lose their religion and find Jesus Christ. As Paul did, he lost his religion. He not only lost it, why, it was for the garbage can. And he had had it on the table as being his most prized possession. This is a revolution that's taken place. Now he states this in theological terms in a most wonderful way here. And this is the theological explanation of what happened to him. Verse 9, "...and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith." Now, this is the verse that old Baptist John Bunyan, walking through the cornfields at night, wondering how he could stand before God. And he made this statement. He says, when I came to Christ, I didn't just see myself as a sinner. I saw myself as sin. From the crown of my head to the sole of my feet, I was sin. And when I came to him, I saw that I had nothing, and he had everything. And this is the verse that came to him, he said that night, walking through the cornfield, "...be found in him, not having mine own righteousness." Now, his own righteousness, as he makes it clear, it's of the law. That is, law-keeping. He could boast of the fact he kept the Sabbath day. And Paul says, "...now let no man judge you by the Sabbath day. God's not going to judge me, and I'm not going to let you judge me." You can make your statement. But your statement won't stand because of the fact that mine own righteousness, I could boast of the fact that I preach so many times during the year, that I have a daily radio program. But these things are nothing, friends. They count for nothing for salvation. Mine own righteousness is a legal righteousness. And God has already said the righteousness of man's filthy rags in his sight and God is just not taking in dirty laundry. He's taking in dirty sinners. And he's the one that'll clean them up. Now, he had therefore given up his claim 
to all of his own righteousness. Now, my friend, when you come to Christ, you come as a bankrupt. You have nothing to offer him. Let's look at that. Let's tell it like it is. What have you got that God can use? I remember speaking several years ago to the Hollywood Christian group, and there had been a young couple converted, and they were talented kids. They had been in nightclubs, and they were attractive kids. They were beautiful people. On the human side, they had everything. And they called on them for a testimony before I spoke. And he gave this kind of a testimony, that he'd been converted now, and he's going to take this wonderful talent that he had and use it for Jesus. And so... After I had finished teaching that night, I got with them at a table where they had coffee and cookies. And I said to him, I have a question that I would like to ask you. It sort of bothers me. You made the statement that you have a wonderful talent to use for Jesus. I'd like to know what your wonderful talent is. You danced in the nightclub. You sang in a nightclub. You told stories in a nightclub. You think Jesus could use that? Well, he said he hadn't thought of it like that. I said, look, when you come to Christ, you come as a bankrupt. You don't offer him anything. You come with nothing. You are a beggar. You are a bankrupt. You have nothing. And he has everything. And he offers it to you. Be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, and the important word is by faith. It's the only way in the world you can get it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. You can't steal it. You just trust him. You honor God when you believe him. And that righteousness came about because when he died on the cross, he subtracted your sins. And when he rose again from the dead, it's for your justification, your righteousness. And you stand before God in Christ, not in yourself. You and I can't stand before him. May I say to you, God can't even stand us, friends. We're not attractive. The very fact he loved us and gave himself for is the most amazing statement that can possibly be made. Now, Paul goes on, and he's going to talk about something beginning here at verse 10. And that is, Paul not only changed his bookkeeping system of the past, but Paul changed his purpose for the present. Now, instead of building up legal righteousness and seeing how religious and pious he can be, and that included persecuting the church, Listen to this, what he's going to do. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, having been saved by faith, you see, that may give the impression that there's no motivation for conduct and works. A great many people say well, McGee, if it's like you tell it, that we're saved by grace, then it must mean that you just sit down and do nothing. My friend, you don't do that. Saving faith is a faith that moves you. James said, 
And James now is not talking about law works. He's talking about the faith works. He says, you show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And I want to say to you, if you've been saved by faith, I want to ask you a question, where are your works? And if you don't have works, you're not saved. Somebody said, wait a minute. Oh, no, let's don't wait a minute. That's exactly what Paul is going to say here. That if you have been saved by faith, that faith now has given you a new motivation, a new life purpose, and a new lifestyle. And my friend, if your faith in Christ hasn't changed you, you haven't been changed. You're still the same old man. And it's going to produce a life. Well, you notice what he says. Paul dissipates here the notion in this section that being saved by faith means you can sit in a rocking chair and rock yourself all the way to heaven. He here exhibits an effort and an energy that's derived from the Holy Spirit, which is far greater than any legal effort. Under the law, this man was willing to go to Damascus to stamp out the followers of Christ. Under the grace-faith system, he'll go to the end of the earth to make followers of Jesus and a witness for him. May I say to you, faith produces something. But let's understand, has nothing to do with your salvation. Your works have nothing to do with it. You're shut up to a cross. And God's only asking you, lost friend, one thing. What will you do with Jesus that died for you? If you'll answer that and accept him as Savior, you're saved by faith. And that's a righteousness that only comes by faith. And even your life after that doesn't build up a righteousness that has anything to do with your salvation. But I tell you, it's a motivation for you to live for God. And that's the reason Paul went on to live as he did. That's the reason other men have. I just don't understand people that are doing nothing for God. Now, some people say, well, I can't do anything, Dr. McGee. I've along in life, and I'm not trained to do that. I don't have a radio program. Let me be very candid with you. You can help me. You can be my partner and help me get out the Word of God. I'm retired, but I want to tell you I'm not going to quit. <laughs> I'm going to get out here where Paul's going to send him in. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. Oh, my friend, it gives a motive, a real motivation. Now, will you listen to this man as he moves on here? You see, at the end of his life, his ambition is still to know Christ. Some saints give me the impression that they know the whole bit, that they have arrived. And all they need to do is just polish their halo every morning, and they're just ready. They have to take off any moment. Why, my friend Paul, even at the end of his life, says, My ambition is still to know Christ, his person, the power of his resurrection. And I want to say to you, that right now is one of the greatest comforts that I have, because what I think I need is the reality of the person of Christ in my life. And now, don't point your finger at me, because I'm going to point my finger at you right now and say, I think that's what you need. We need the reality of Jesus Christ in our life the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, I was moved to tears when I read a letter of somebody that got a book on the 22nd Psalm. They said, oh, I never knew how much he suffered for me. Well, may I say to you, 
I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. And I want to enter into it. To know Christ and his work of redemption will engage our attention for eternity. That's why we're going to be spending eternity. And if you're not interested in it now, I don't know why you want to go to heaven. You'd be bored because they're going to praise him 24 hours a day. They're going to praise him. And if you don't enjoy praising Christ and wanting to know him, I don't know why you want to go to heaven. I'd suggest that you find another place to go. Because, my friend, they're going to glorify him in heaven. Now, in verse 11 here, Paul is not expressing a doubt, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, but about his participation in the rapture. Rather, he is affirming that he will have part in it with great joy. Paul does not expect to attain perfection in this life. And therefore, Paul says, I want to have full participation in the rapture. These folk that don't believe in a rapture. I wonder about their relationship to the person of Christ. Well, my friend, that is the thing that this man could say. He says, why, my ambition, the thing I'm moving toward is that I might not only know him, but might have part in the rapture in such a way it'll be meaningful. I think there are going to be some saints when they're going up, they're going to say, what in the world's happening? What a shock they're in for. Now, will you notice verse 12? He says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I'm apprehended of Jesus. What he's saying, I think, here is the knowledge that he'll not attain perfection here does not deter him from moving in that direction. We should be growing, as Peter put it, in grace and in the knowledge of him. Verse 13, and this will give you the modus operandi of the life of Paul. He says here, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Paul says, I'm not it. I haven't arrived. Oh, so many saints feel so comfortable. They feel comfortable in ignorance. They think they know it all. Oh, my friend, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the past, he's leaving it behind with all its mistakes, not letting it be a handicap for the present. The future, he lives in the present in anticipation of the future when he'll grow and develop. Someone has said that today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. This is practical sanctification. Oh, how real this is. And he says, I'm out on the race course. And there is a prize for Christian living. Paul's future is so absorbed with Christ that it motivates everything he says and does in the presence. And he likens himself to a track star running for a prize. And his prize is not some earthly reward, but for Christ himself, that someday, the rapture, he'll be caught up and be in the presence of Christ. And that was the thing that he anticipated, and that's what it is. And many of us need to get in the race of life. We need to get in this. I think there are a lot of Christians like the whimsical story I heard about the maiden lady that was at a party, and they were playing a game who could make the funniest face. And finally, after they'd all made a funny face, 
why they came over and handed her the prize. She says, what's this for? What's this for the prize for making the funniest face? Well, she said, I wasn't even playing. I think there are a lot of Christians not even playing at this wonderful, tremendous experience and adventure of living the Christian life. That is the picture that's given to us. And the prize for Christian living actually was Christ himself. And Paul's future is so absorbed by Christ that it motivates everything he says and does in the present. He likens himself, therefore, to a track star running for a prize. And you must remember, Paul apparently witnessed the Olympics. There was a great amphitheater in Ephesus, seated a 100,000 people, and the Olympic Games were held there at times. And Paul was in that city for three years. It's difficult to believe that he didn't go there. He uses many figures that are taken from those athletic events. And here he likens himself out there on the racetrack running, running for a prize. Now, we don't run for salvation. That is Christ. We either have him or we don't have him. We either trust him or don't trust him. And the only way you can have salvation is through faith because it's a gift, and that's the way that you get a gift. I've just come through another birthday, and it's nothing to brag about when you get up where I am today. And it was quite wonderful. The office here, these wonderful folk that are in our radio staff, they presented me with the prize. Not a prize, it was a gift. And you know what I did? I believe that when they offered it to me, they really intended to give it to me, and I just reached out and took it. That's all. And then I had friends that did the same thing. I just accepted it and thanked them for it. I didn't do a thing to merit it, to win it, or work for it, anything. It was a gift. Now, the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus, and it's Christ himself. Now, you either will accept him or you won't accept him. That's salvation. And you can only by faith, therefore. It means to believe God. I believed all these friends. When somebody said, I've got a gift for you, Dr. McGee, and poked a box at me, I took it. <laughs> I believed them. I didn't put my hands back on me and said, well, I'm not sure that you really mean business. I'm not sure that you intend to do this for me. You and I do not know how really good God is. Now, Paul, after he'd received eternal life, Christ became everything to him now. Why, he's outrunning running a race that he might win Christ. In what way? Well, someday he's going to appear before him. And his whole thought and intent was, I just want, when I come into his presence, I don't want to be ashamed. John said that it's possible to be ashamed at his appearing. I think there are a great many Christians today that are always talking about, oh, if Jesus had only come if they really knew what it's going to mean to him when he comes, I think they'd like for him to postpone it a little bit longer. Because, my friend, if you think that you can live a careless Christian life and not have to answer for that, you're entirely wrong. You're his child. Yes, of course you are. But a disobedient child, well, you know, I've even got to the point where my grandson does things wrong. 
I paddle him. Now, that is something at first I didn't dare do. Why, I thought he was, you know, I thought he was so precious, so wonderful. But I find out that little fella, he's got the nature of his grandmother. And therefore, he needs punishing at times. He needs paddling at times. Now, if you think as God's child that you're going to live any kind of life and come in his presence someday, I suggest to you, get out on a race course. Start living for him. Look to him. And that is the thing that we need. Now, Paul, here in verse 15, says this, "...let us therefore as many as be perfect." Now, what does he mean by that? If he means those of us that are perfect, I don't know very many people that are perfect. In fact, I don't know anybody that is. I know one or two that say they are. But one man told me that he'd reached a complete sanctification, but I couldn't even get his wife to agree to it. She didn't think he'd reached it, and I don't think that he had to tell the truth. What does he mean here? Well, perfect here is in the sense of being mature and complete. You mind if I use the little grandson again? You know, when he was born, he was one of the cutest babies you've ever seen. Just beautiful. He's grown now, that is, he's moving along, and here he goes. Now, if he still was that little old baby that he was at the beginning, there'd be something radically wrong, It'd be tragic. Well, he's growing. He runs around now. He's a tall little fella. And may I say to you that he's growing, and he's perfect in that sense. He's what a boy ought to be. And that's what Paul is saying to these believers. Let us, therefore, as many as are complete in Christ, that are growing in Christ, let us be thus-minded. Let us get out on the racetrack. Let's work for him. Let's do something for him. And if in anything ye be otherwise-minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Now, if you have some other idea, maybe God has something else for you to do today. And he'll show it to you. That is, if you'll do it, you're willing to do it. I think that God's able to lead a willing believer. It's these unwilling. You remember that the psalmist, when we were back in Psalms, the psalmist says, don't be like the horse or the mule, the little old donkey with long ears. You've got to put a bridle in his mouth, lead him around. God will lead you around like that, my friend, and it'll hurt. Why not? Let him lead you by his eye. That's the way he'd like to do it. And that's what Paul is talking about. God shall reveal this unto you. You want to be led. When I hear Christians say today, Oh, if I just only knew the will of God. Well, what's the matter with you? It's a matter of being in touch with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a matter of drawing close to him. There's no little easy formula today to find the will of God. And if you think you can live a careless Christian life for yourself, and then you come to a crisis, and then you say, oh, I want to do God's will, and that an angel will speak out of heaven, or a green light will appear to you, or an angel will come to you at night and tell you what to do, I think you're wrong. I think you're entirely wrong. This matter of the will of God is a day-by-day sort of thing. And if you're willing to be led, well... He'll put you on the highway and keep you on the route that
that you ought to be on today, the freeway of life for you. And it'll be a great joy to your heart. Now, will you notice, he says in verse 16, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Paul is saying here to these Philippians, he says, I want you to make this your goal in life. I want you to get out on the racetrack. That is what he's saying. And he now can give himself as an example. He says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. Now, I wish I could say that. I can't, but Paul could. He says, if you want to know how to do it, (laughs) you watch us. And again, it's not for imitation, but actually what he means is that you learn to share the power of Christ in the body of Christ the church. And I believe that today, and I'd like for those who think that I become anti-church at times. I think that we ought to point out the difficulties. The church is in apostasy, no question about that. And therefore, we have a perfect right and should point these things out. That doesn't mean you're anti-church at all. But I believe that it is the proper function of a believer to function inside of a Christian organization. A church. Now, it doesn't have to meet in a building with a tall steeple on it. great many people feel that they have to go to a certain type of a building. That's not necessary. You can function in a Christian organization. And my feeling is that if there's a good Bible church in your community where the Word of God is given out and you're not identified with it, I would say immediately that you're out of the will of God. And if there's a Christian organization in your town and you're not supporting it, I think you're out of the will of God. I'm very frank to say that. I believe that's exactly what Paul means here. And I know that's what he says elsewhere. Now, let me continue on here. Verse 18, because Paul discusses the negative side, listen to him. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mine earthly thing. Now, that is probably a severe condemnation that you can find of those who profess to be Christians here. He is saying here, there's some who profess Christ, yet who contradict all of this by their lives. And he says their God is their belly. And that's an awful thing. Actually, it means their appetite. There are Christians that have an appetite for money, and they will do most anything for the almighty dollar. And the dollar is not so almighty today. But they are engaged in that. And then there are others that sex actually is their God. There are others that covet. 
They explain so much of the criticism today, the strife and vain glory. Oh, if I only had what so-and-so had, if I could only do what so-and-so's doing, if I only lived in the home he lives in, and so on. That is the thing today. And there are many Christians that have their minds and hearts on earthly things. Now, what Paul is really saying here is that if you really have trusted Christ, if you had that revolution that he says happened to him on the Damascus Road, and that now Christ is the all-absorbing thinking of your mind and your time and your talent and of your possessions, then he says, it's going to tell in your life. James had put it like that. It says, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead. Being alone, yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I'll show thee my faith by my works. In other words, my friend, if you haven't any works, you're not going to convince your neighbor. Now, God knows your heart. I don't. Your neighbor doesn't. But he sure knows your works. Calvin put it this way, Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Whose God is their belly? That's a frightful statement. Somebody says it's crude. Well, a statement's not crude, but what it speaks of, oh, it is crude today. And to see Christians given over to the things of this world, to earthly things, who mind earthly things, things that are passing away. Now we come to the last division of this chapter. Paul changed his hope for the future. And here we have it in verse 20. And let me share this verse with you. For our conversation is in heaven. Now, conversation here is citizenship. And you find that in the better, I think, translation. And it actually means the total way of life and of living. It means the new lifestyle. Now, Miss Montgomery translated it, our city home is in heaven. And I'll be honest with you, I think probably that's closer to what Paul is saying. And it means just simply this. The word is polituma. And we get our word politics from that word. Politics is almost a dirty word today, but polichema, politics, has to do with the city. It has to do with the life of the city. Now, in Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony. And actually, in Philippi, the laws of Rome were enforced. People wore the same kind of styles they had in Rome. They spoke Latin. Everything was like it was in Rome. And they were a colony of Rome, a colonial city. Now, the church should be a colony of heaven. And that means they ought to act like they act in heaven. (laughs) Believe me, that's not always true, is it? And they ought to have the language of heaven. And they ought to live like they live in heaven. That is what the word means. Our city home. We are a colony of heaven, and therefore, that should be our goal. 
That's where we would want to go. That's where we'd want to be, would be in heaven. And we're to represent it down here today. We're ambassadors of Christ down here. And Paul is saying now that we are to represent heaven and heaven's message here upon earth today. And as I used to hear Dr. Herbert Bieber put it, all the way to heaven is heaven. Therefore, the child of God should be experiencing the joy of the Lord, the peace of God, and the love of God. These are things that are present experiences for the child of God. For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the whole tenor of Scripture, of the New Testament, And the hope of the believer is never the great tribulation period. Paul doesn't say here, and he has it here with such a note of joy, and on the high plane of praise to God, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, after you go through the great tribulation period. Now, the great tribulation period is a time of judgment, and the church is delivered from judgment and will not go through it any more than the fact that Enoch did not go through the flood. Now, somebody says, but God can keep you in it. Yes, God kept Noah in the flood in a boat, but he took Enoch out of the world. There'll be two groups of people that'll be his. In the great tribulation period, one will be taken out, as he says to the church in Philadelphia, and the other are those that will be going through it. There will be a great company of Gentiles and 144,000 of Israel. And if you think that's not Israel in the church, then I'd like to ask you what tribe you belong to, because not only is it called Israel, but also each tribe and how many is in each tribe. And you certainly better find out what tribe you're in if you're planning on going through the Great Tribulation period because they are to be sealed. It's becoming increasingly absurd to me to hold a position that the church is going through the Great Tribulation period. There are those that say there's not a verse in Scripture that says the church will not go through the Great Tribulation. May I say there's not a verse in Scripture that has anything to say about the church not doing other things, but that the church will do them, I'm sure. I'm confident that we're going to all have a position, a job to do throughout eternity. But he doesn't go into detail on that sort of thing. The Scripture is also clear on this that the church has a glorious, wonderful hope for the future, and that between right now, it's tissue thin between where we are and the rapture of the church, and that does not mean he'll come tomorrow, because Paul had a hope that apparently he felt like even in his lifetime the Lord could come. And I can't find where Paul expected to go through the Great Tribulation. And he was having a lot of trouble, and he never interpreted that 
as the Great Tribulation. Some people seem to think that the Great Tribulation is probably a hard rainstorm, that it probably is a slight 60-mile-an-hour wind that'll be blowing through the earth. My friend, it's horrible beyond description, so much so that in the book of Revelation it's described in the most vivid terms, and you can't tone it down or tune it down. Now, here is a note of gladness, and these notes of gladness and of expectancy make it very clear that the church is not going through a great tribulation. Our conversation, our citizenship from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, after we go through the great tribulation. Nowhere does it say the church is going through it either, my friend. Now, will you notice, who shall change our vile body? And I want to change that just a little, if you don't mind. A vile body actually is better translated body of humiliation. Or I think even more acceptable is the body of corruption. You and I have a body that's a corruptible body. It'll have to be put away one of these days when you and I move out because it's subject to corruption. And he's going to change these corruptible bodies that we've got. That is a great, wonderful hope. I'd like to trade mine in right now, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now, a vile body is a body of corruption, and we are to be changed like unto his own glorious body. It will be a body that will be like the one the Lord Jesus had after his resurrection, Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 54. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. And the whole point here, it'll be sudden, and it'll take place at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. There are those that assume that one of the angels in Revelation, the seventh trumpet, that's the trumpets being blown here. But where did they get the idea that this is the trumpet blown by the seventh angel? When, in fact, the one blowing the trumpet is not even indicated. And you know why? Because it's not a trumpet in the sense we think of somebody tooting a horn. If that's what you're thinking of, now you have that in Revelation because you're dealing with Israel. Israel was moved on the wilderness march by the blowing of trumpets. The two silver trumpets were used to move them on the wilderness march. They're used to trumpets. We're not. We're never called. Somebody says, but it says, "...the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God." Well, that's the trump of God. And somebody's turned it over to Gabriel, and Gabriel's going to blow a horn. What nonsense! Gabriel doesn't even own a horn. 
And if he does, I don't think he can blow it. He's not blowing the horn. What does it mean there? The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a voice of an archangel. Does an archangel with him? No, his voice is like the voice of an archangel. It speaks of the dignity and the majesty of that shout of his. And the trumpet? What about that? Well, that's his voice. Oh, that speaks how penetrating it's going to be and how awe-inspiring it's going to be. Somebody says, can you be sure of that? Oh, yes. Over in Revelation, Revelation 1.10, it says, John says, I heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Well, who's got a voice like that? Well, John says, I turned to see. And who do you think it was? The glorified Christ. It's going to be his voice. There's no trumpet connected with the church at all. And here it's the Lord giving the last call. Today he stands at the door and knock, and he's saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open to me. But that's the last one. And the door is open. And out go from this earth a group of people that have been put on the launching pad of faith, and they don't go through any tribulation period. May I say to you, those that have the church going through the great tribulation have, to my judgment, the flimsy, Scriptures to use of any theory that is abroad today. And yet, there are many so-called intelligent men. But I find those men spend more time with philosophy and psychology and history and subjects like that rather than the study of the Word of God. And I've dwelt now with this quite a bit because I think this is very important for us to see it. Now, will you notice here again, who shall change our body of corruption that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. And this speaks of the thing that John spoke of also. Beloved, now are we the children of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, doesn't appear now, but when he appears, we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is. And there's no thought in those passages other than that of high hope, expectancy, excitement, and great anticipation. And there's not even a scintilla of suggestion that the church will go through that period that's known as the Great Tribulation period. And he very candidly told the church, I'm going to keep you from that hour which is coming on the whole earth to try them that dwell here upon this earth. And that's a worldwide judgment that's coming, and there's only one that's coming, and that's the Great Tribulation period. How important that is to see So Paul, he had a hope for the future. And what's your hope for the future? A great tribulation period? My friend, that is just about as hopeless as the man today who has no hope, saying, well, got to grit my teeth now because I'm going through a time of judgment. I enjoy flying on the 747s. And I'll tell you why. There's several reasons, but the main reason is this. We were flying 
to the Wayan Islands. And I noticed that he went way north, and we came in way north. We couldn't even see the big island. And you know why? There was a storm down there. There was a storm front on the southern route, or the direct route going. And he went north, and we were about, oh, I suppose 30 minutes late getting in. Maybe not quite that much. I appreciated the fact that he went around in a storm. I wasn't looking forward to that at all. And that's no blessed hope. It used to be the pilot would say, there is a storm front ahead of us, and we're going to have turbulence for the next 30 minutes. That was no blessed hope to me. But it sure is nice to have him say, we're going to go around and try to miss this front. And the Lord says to the church, we're going to miss it. That's what he said. And you can twist it around to suit your theory. But that's what he said. He made it very clear. 